Shabbos is for Jewish people. Not only are non-Jewish people not obligated to keep Shabbos, the Talmud actually has quite a harsh statement about a non-Jewish person to keep Shabbos. It's derived from this week's parasha from a very unusual source, or at least so it would appear, which helps us to understand the foundational and fundamental difference between what it is that a Jewish person has to do for God in this world compared to everybody else. In Akosov, from the Pasuk that says, that after the flood, Hashem promised that the seasons would never be disrupted again and neither would a night and day ever pause. From there the Gemara learns, that tells us if a non-Jewish person keeps Shabbos, it is a capital offense. Remember, because the Pasuk says, because the Torah says that day and night may not rest. In other words, you don't have the rights to take a day of rest. And the Gemara then comments that the fact that, that they're warned not to do it, how are they warned not to do it? Because look what happens. A non-Jewish person who keeps Shabbos, it's a capital offense. And then the Gemara goes further, because at that point you'd think that they're not allowed to keep Shabbos on Shabbos. Even if they chose a random Monday to keep Shabbos, that would be a capital offense. So not only are non-Jews not supposed to keep our Shabbos, they're not supposed to keep any Shabbos. Pesh Rashi, to which Rashi explains, Ravina, that Ravina is showing us, that idea not to rest, he loved Israel. It's not necessarily only on the day, the seventh day of the week, which the Jews sanctify Shabbos. Neither is it Sunday, which is the day observed by Christianity as the day of rest. Rashi says any day of rest is forbidden for the non-Jewish world. That they dare not stop working. And even if it's a day which is not already dedicated as a day of rest. So Rashi is telling us, the Gemara wants us to know, that a non-Jewish person may never rest on any day of the week as if it were Shabbos, based on this Pasuk. Whereas when you look in the Rambam, it's a little different. The Rambam writes that the prohibition against resting on a day during the week, even on another day that's not Shabbos or even Sunday, is not because of what Rashi says, that a non-Jewish person is not permitted a day of rest. The Rambam gives a completely different reason for it. Because we don't allow the nations of the world to invent their own religions and to innovate their own mitzvahs of their own accord. That if a non-Jewish person takes a day of the week and declares it a day of rest, it is a capital offense. That would only apply if he turned that day into a religious day of rest, like Shabbos. Which implies, that based on the Rambam's approach, when the Torah warns us, do not rest or do not cease from work, the Rambam understands that the Torah is telling us that a non-Jewish person may not observe a Shabbos, even if it's on another day. But the prohibition is not against rest. The prohibition, according to the Rambam, is against making a day of Shabbos. Now, according to the Rambam's approach, here's a question we have to answer. 
If the Rambam is saying that the prohibition is that the non-Jewish world may not invent a religious day of rest like Shabbos, how is that connected? The prohibition against non-Jews keeping Shabbos or turning another day into Shabbos. How does that link to the Pasuk in our parasha, which sounds like that Hashem has designed a way that the world should work and it dare not pause or cease. For example, what it says directly in the Pasuk, Zera Vekotzer, a time to plow or to sow and a time to harvest. Goimer, etc. Vigyon Velaylan, day and night. So, Bishlom Lefi Pirish Rashi, this would make perfect sense if you go with Rashi's approach. Shemenucha Ba'alma Ka'osalihu, that Rashi's approach is the Torah prohibits the nations of the world from taking rest. Shaloyivatlumimelocha, so that their work and contribution to society should never cease. Then, you see the link between what Rashi is saying and what the Halacha is saying and what the parish over here is saying. That the words do not cease mean there should be no break, no pause, no cessation of work. And that could be read either as a guarantee, an assurance. And equally and almost automatically as an instruction. Like Rashi explains, Rashi says, that the natural cycles will not stop, does not only apply to the six seasons that are described over there, which is the sowing season, the harvesting season, the um, the hot season, the cold season, Zera, the Kotzer, Yoimam Zera, the Kotzer, the planting season, the harvest season, and the cold and the hot season, the summer and the winter seasons. Not only, says Rashi, does that apply to those seasons that they will never stop, but it was also directed towards people. That people may never cease working. So that makes sense according to, the, to Rashi's approach. But according to the Rambam's approach, the implication when the Bnei Noach are told that the cycles of life should never cease, so that would imply that it's got nothing at all to do with work and not working. The Rambam's understanding it to mean that the non-Jewish world may never make a day that is like Shabbos. To which we have to ask the obvious question, what would the connection be between the warning to the nations of the world not to make a day of Shabbos? How would that relate to the concept of Hashem assuring and, and instructing that the cycles of the world should never stop? What we've just learned that the Pasuk we're reading in our parasha about the different seasons not, not stopping is linked to the Jewish people keeping Shabbos and nobody else. That's also Huvagamba Medrash. It's also brought in the Medrash and there it's brought Allah Pasuk relating to a different Pasuk much later on where Hashem tells Moshe to tell the Jewish people Look, Hashem has presented to you the concept of Shabbos and at that point they're told Shavu You've got to stay where you are, you don't move out of your space on Shabbos, etc. So, let's look at the exact wording of the Medrash. Lochem nitna. It says, Nosan lochem. Hashem gave you the Shabbos. It was given to you. It was not given to the nations of the world. Mikan Amru from here, says the Medrash, we learn. If nations of the world arrive and decide to keep Shabbos, 
Not only will they not be rewarded for that, but it's a capital offense. And then the Medrash quotes the passage from our Pasha, that just as day and night may never cease, so may the cycle of working in the world also not cease. And then he brings a third point, that the covenant of Shabbos is between me, says Hashem, and the Jewish people. Just says the Medrash, it's like a king and queen sitting opposite each other, the Jewish people and Hashem. And if somebody else should walk in between them, that would be a capital offense. So if the non-Jewish world wants to step into the Shabbos world, get in between Hashem and the Jewish people, that would be the most serious of all things. Just a note. Of course, if you notice over here, the warning to the nations of the world that they dare not stop working under the guise of Shabbos is said, specifically related to to another Pasuk, where Hashem says, I'm giving you the Shabbos. So even though its starting point is a different Pasuk, there's no grounds to say that the Midrash and the Gemara are arguing about the content or about the message. Because you could say that when the Midrash tells us that Hashem has given you Shabbos and not the nations of the world, that's not only referring necessarily to the day, the seventh day of the week, you could easily say that the concept of Shabbos, the concept of a day of rest, is something Hashem says, I have given you and not someone else. And that would be exactly like the Gemara says, even if it's an ordinary Monday. So, ostensibly, the Medrash and the Gemara are pretty much saying the same thing. Which helps us to understand, when the Midrash tells us that there's the principle that a non-Jewish person may not have a day of Shabbos, if you read carefully, the Midrash doesn't sound like it's speaking Rashi's language, that they may not have a day of rest regardless of when it is. And as a Rambam, it actually sounds like the Midrash is agreeing with the Rambam that the prohibition is against the non-Jewish world taking a day and determining that day as a religious day of rest. Now here you got to hold cop a little bit because there's a subtle difference between how the Rambam presents it and how the Medrash presents it. From the Rambam's perspective, the reason why a non-Jewish person may not elect to keep Shabbos on any day of the week it's because we don't allow them to innovate their own religion. Now, even though the Medrash says effectively the same thing, we may not permit them to make a day of Shabbos, it's for a different reason. It's because the principle of Shabbos was only given to the Jewish people, not to the rest of the world. In that case, we need to understand also from the perspective of the Medrash, besides the question we already addressed against the Rambam's opinion, which is, what is the real link between the prohibition against non-Jewish people keeping Shabbos and the principle of that the systems of nature should never cease? Besides that, let's ask a question specifically to the Medrash. Why is it so out of the question for a non-Jewish person to keep Shabbos? 
that they are not even allowed to choose another day of the week and make it their Shabbos. Why? Logic would dictate the opposite. The concept of Hashem resting from His work, completing all the work by the end of the sixth day and resting on the seventh day, kosher is it's presented in the Torah, loved Israel, not as something which was addressed to the Jewish people. Like, for example, Yetzias Mitzrayim, which obviously is only for the Jewish people. And so naturally, Pesach is only for the Jewish people. This is something that is related to creation. In that case, logically, if Shabbos is part of the creation of nature, surely then Shabbos belongs to everybody who lives in nature, including the non-Jewish world. Now that, that's really strange. Because the law is the exact opposite. That a non-Jewish person is not permitted to rest on Shabbos. Why? It's part of how Hashem created the world. Surely that has relation or, or, or meaning to all of His creations. And it's an even bigger question when you analyze it because why were Jewish people instructed not to work on Shabbos like the, uh, the Sefer HaChinuch says in order to ingrain inside our psyche the absolute awareness of the fact that Hashem recreates the world at all times. In other words, that the world is not something that is an, an, an actual existence or a primary existence that always was, but it's a creation made by Hashem, which means that it happens consistently. Now, when you think about the fact that not only are non-Jews not required to keep Shabbos, but they're forbidden from keeping Shabbos, that means we're actively preventing the non-Jewish world from ingraining within themselves the belief in the fact that Hashem creates the world. How could that be? So besides all the technical questions, how does this practically relate according to the Ramah? A huge question. How do we interfere with the possibility of the nations of the world acknowledging Hashem and the fact that Hashem creates the world afresh consistently? So to understand that, in order to understand this, we're going to examine something which is actually so glaring and yet we probably haven't thought of it before. And that is the complete paradox about the state of the world after the flood. Compared to how the world was before the flood. On one hand, you'll see, as we've just read, the gives a promise to the world of sustainability, that things will not cease, that the seasons won't go out of whack, that day and night will not stop. So on the one hand, Hashem has consolidated the sustainability of the world. That is an upgrade to the world. The world is now more stable than it was even at the time of its creation because there were no assurances that the system would not be upended. So the world becomes a stronger, consolidated reality after the flood. On the one hand, 
Because before Hashem brought the flood, when Hashem created the world, yes, of course, he said that he saw everything and was absolutely great and amazing. But there was always the weakness of the world that people could misbehave and that could upset the natural order. And it actually happened. Right? That's what happened. The said he regretted making human beings and therefore wanted to completely expunge them. And it's only after the mabble after the flood, then then Hashem promised and made a covenant using the rainbow that from here on out, regardless of how people behave, the world will never be upset again, will never cease to run in its normal fashion again. On the one hand, yet on the other hand, what do you find as another reality post that there was a weakening of the population after the flood. One example is, as the Ramban says, before the Mabul people lived for centuries. And after the Mabul, human lifespan decreased. So on the one hand, the world is stronger. On the other hand, components of the world are weaker. How do you make sense of that? Biroinian's explanation is as, as follows. Seeing as we know that the ultimate reason the world was created was for the sake of Torah, not only for the sake of Torah, but it is a built-in precondition to the world. That the Ebishter made a precondition with the whole created reality. If the Jews accept my Torah, then the world will sustain. And if not, we understand the alternative. So the whole world was created for the purpose of Torah. What is Torah all about? The massive revolution of the giving of Torah is the connection and synthesizing of the higher spiritual realms with the lower physical reality. So in order for that to happen, in order for the Ebrister to bring about this great harmony between the high and lower realms, they have to be higher and lower realms. So first you create that contrast and that distinction and disparity between the high and lower realms so that afterwards, at the time the Torah is presented, and to a certain extent prior to that, basically from the birth of Avram Avinu, or at least his recognition of Hashem, which began the 2,000 years known as the two millennia of Torah, which began the preparation to receive the Torah. The whole purpose of all of that, of Torah, is to create this brand new reality that the higher spiritual and the lower physical realms can meld together. As the Medrash says, that the lower realms could be elevated to the higher realms, and the higher realms could descend into the lower realms. That is the purpose of creation, in order to bring holy into mundane and synthesize them. With that in mind, we can now look at the difference between how the world was after the Mabal, how it changed. So how it was before the Mabal, sorry, compared to how it was after the Mabal. That will speak to this theme of the fusion of spiritual and physical. 
before the flood happened, the general state of the world was from the perspective of on high. In other words, the world was assessed based on a higher spiritual perspective. Whereas following the flood, the world was assessed from the perspective of how it is below. Now, right now, that's a bit abstract. We're going to explain it. In order to explain it, let's look at that moment where Hashem offers His covenant of stability for the world. Commenting on the Pasuk, which says that Hashem is going to put the rainbow into the sky. And that will be the symbol of my covenant to sustain the earth. So the Mephoshim asks a really simple question. Isn't a rainbow a natural phenomenon? How does it appear? It's the refraction of sunlight through a particular angle through the moisture of the clouds. So all the commentary asks, how could this be a sign of a covenant? It's a natural phenomenon. To which they answer, a very intriguing answer, Teva Zegufa, what we consider to be nature now, that the interplay between sun rays and cloud moisture could be to refract the light of the sun into the seven color range of a rainbow. Might be natural to us, but it's actually an innovation that the Ebishter only introduced after the flood. Why? Because prior to the flood, the atmospheric conditions of the world were denser. And therefore, even the clouds that would form through the process of evaporation were denser clouds than what we know now. And so therefore, they were not able to refract light through them. The light didn't penetrate through the clouds. So there were no rainbows. Isn't that fascinating information? It's only because the world was then refined and cleansed through the flood. So the clouds became finer, more permeable clouds. Not as dense as they were before. And therefore, and that's why there are certain times where it's possible that they are uh, light enough that the sun rays can create a rainbow through them. And that's the physical manifestation of a spiritual concept. Before the Mabel happened, the world at large was a very lowly, materialistic place. To the extent that it wasn't even possible to extract holy meaning out of the physical world. And that's why there had to be a flood, which wasn't destruction and devastation, but rather the Tyrasar, it's to purify the earth, that's why it's 40 days and nights, to correspond to the 40 saw of a mikveh, so that it would be possible for us through our avoida to elevate and refine sparks of holiness that were entrapped in the world. That's why the rainbow is the sign of Hashem's covenant and only happens, sorry, it only happens later. It's not just some arbitrary sign that David puts in the sky to say, don't worry, I won't kill you ever again. It's a sign of the fact that the world has improved, that the world is more translucent, more, more susceptible to spirituality and therefore won't be destroyed again.
So if that's the case, then we have to ask, Surely we all know that the only reason the Mabul happened with whatever benefits of purification it may have caused only happened it's only because of the absolutely amoral behavior of the generation of the flood. Because the Abish has created the world in such a way that the world is effectively kind of entrenched within the hearts and attitudes of people. So when people behave so badly as they did during the time of the flood, that thickens and hardens and lowers the materialistic reality of the world. And that's what was cleansed by the Mabel. In other words, the people contaminated and polluted the world, and then the Mabel cleansed it. Isn't that how we know the story? Whereas the way we've explained it is, that the very first time that a rainbow ever appeared in the sky was only after the flood, because because only then was the world refined and clearer and more susceptible to holiness. That totally changes the narrative. So now the flood doesn't only cleanse away the pollution of the generation of the, the amoral generation of the flood. It actually implies that now the world is higher, greater, more refined and more clear than it was even before the people of the flood generation started to behave so badly. And possibly, that after the flood, the world is now at an elevated state beyond how it was at the beginning of creation. Because there were no rainbows even at the beginning of creation. And as we've already said, the rainbow is a sign that the world has improved. So how does this work? Abirbo's explanation is, yes, at the beginning of the world, the world was pristine, but that amazing wholesomeness of the world was not the product of the world. The world didn't create or generate its own wholesomeness or its own completion. It's because of the Abishta's input. The Abishta created a wholesome world. The Abishta created a world where everything that needs to be there is there. In other words, the Abishta superimposes perfection onto a world that intrinsically has no clue about perfection. But the concept, the possibility of the world being able to find its way to holiness, connection, clarification. That is the innovation of the Mabel. That's the time where the Abish imbued the world with new capacity. That the world itself could be elevated. At the beginning, what makes the world great? The fact that Hashem made it. After the flood, what will make the world great? The fact that we, residents of this world, can work with the world to elevate it. That's why the rainbow is only introduced at that point as part of the natural phenomena of this world. 
Yes, the scientific explanation for rainbows is refraction of sunlight through the moisture of the clouds. But look how it works. Sun rays on their own don't produce rainbows. It's the clouds that are able to reinterpret those sun rays into rainbows. So the sun rays represent the Abishah's input because Hashem is compared to the sun. It's the fact that the clouds are now not so dense. Sorry, that the, the light of the sun is so pure with its own color. The only way you get from sunlight to have a rainbow is through moisture. That is the evaporation from the earth implying the world's contribution, specifically human contribution. Because we're now living in a reality where the kind of moisture that rises through evaporation is the kind of moisture that can facilitate the bending of sunlight into rainbows. So now this nature that now exists within the world, the characteristic of the world, that it can produce moisture to evaporate, to become clouds, which implies that the world itself can actually be elevated beyond itself. All of that was only introduced after the flood was over. And that's why clouds, uh, sorry, that's why rainbows were only introduced as Hashem's symbol at that point. They introduced into the reality of the clouds the possibility of rainbows. They now modified the nature of creation. The clouds can allow sunlight through and produce, therefore, a rainbow. In other words, what are we talking about over here? There is a beautiful, pristine reality as Hashem creates it, and that's not good enough. The ultimate state is a pristine reality as we create it. Now we can understand the big shift that happened after the Mabal. That the Abishta's supernal will, which already existed right from the beginning of creation, to create the world. Not only did he have this pristine wish to create the world, but that all came to fruition at the point where the Abishta looked back and said, it's all excellent. That does not preclude the possibility of humankind deteriorating so badly that they deserved to be destroyed. Where their, their negative behavior completely overtook the world. That's prior to the Mabel. Whereas after the flood is over, then Hashem makes this eternal covenant. Even if the world or the human humankind behaves in a way that does produce the possibility of thinking that it's time to bring the world to darkness and destruction, Yet Hashem promises, even if the world is so bad, I'm not going to wipe everybody out again, like I did previously. Why is that? We already mentioned before. The fact that the world was created so pristine originally, is the greatness of Hashem, the Creator.
and no reflection on what the world is actually all about. That's why it's possible that sins, which have the, the, the potential to create separation between the world and its creator, cause such a devastating collapse that the world reached a point where it was beyond repair. Because it was the sin of the people of that time prior to the flood that contaminated the world so badly, to the extent that the world was completely filled with poor behavior, with amoral behavior. And the world reached a point of no return where it had no means to claw its way back to connection. Omikan, by the way, Gam Tam Pnimi also gives us a deeper insight, that the warning that Noach gave, that David is about to flood you, did nothing. Why? Because they were past the, they, they were at a point of, of no return. And so therefore, at that point when the world is so toxic, there's really no reason for it to continue. As the Torah reports, they regret making people. It says, let me erase them. Because the world having deteriorated to such a horrific state, loses Debeshter's impetus to want to keep it going. Why did they wish to have a rotten to create the world in the first place? In order that it should be a place of connection. When all of that falls apart, there's no longer a rotten to keep the world alive. That's all prior to the Mabel where everything is dependent on the Eibishter's attitude and approach. When he sees the world as beautiful, toiv ma'oid. When he sees that his world is not connecting to him anymore, says, no more. But after the Mabel comes along to purify the world, the world itself is transformed. The world itself now has an element of purity to it. So therefore, that means, from here on, even if the world collapses into the worst spiritual state, it can be fixed, it can be re-elevated through a tshuva process. And therefore, because there is always hope and you can never now go to a point beyond return, that's why they can now make a promise never to destroy again and never to bring another flood. Whatever happens to the world, irrespective. With that in mind, you can start to appreciate the two paradoxical realities that define the post-flood world. On the one hand, the strength of the world being guaranteed that it will sustain. And on the other hand, that people's lifespans diminish dramatically. And that's no contradiction. Now, ladder up to the contrary. Both of those components speak to one foundational shift that happened after the flood. Because now what shifted? It's the stability and sustainability of the world is now no longer contingent on Hashem alone. 
It is fundamental to the world itself. It deserves to exist. Prior to the flood, the only reason why there should be a world, either to create it in the first place or to sustain it beyond that, is because Debishta wants it. Because Debishta wants kindness and wants to spread kindness. And therefore, if Debishta no longer wants to, because the world has degraded so badly that it is no longer what he had in mind, then he says, goodbye. But once the world has been purified through the intense process of the Mabble, then why does Debesha recreate the world at every moment? Not just because he wants to be good, but because the world deserves to exist. Because it's been so purified and refined and elevated. That is the reason for these two paradoxical realities. The fact that the world deserves that Debeshta, who never changes, should sustain the world. Then he sustains the world in a way that is uninterrupted. Because Debeshta never changes, so his pledge to sustain the world will never change. Yet on the other hand, the very fact that the Ebesha sustains the world now, post-flood, because of the world's contribution and value, well, then you have to know, the world's fundamental strength isn't that strong. The reality of the world is things atrophy. Things weaken over time. Relative to which particular created being we're discussing. And that's a very different reality to how it was before the Mabble. Because prior to the Mabble, why did the world exist? Because the Ebesha was nice, the Ebesha was kind. So therefore the Ebesha could keep people living as long as he chose to keep them living for centuries. More technical Kabbalistic reason explained in Tikkun Why do people live so long at that time before the flood? Because the nature of the energy that flowed into the world in order to sustain it belongs to Arich Anpin, which is the concept of long-suffering patience and tremendous sharing of energy, even if you don't deserve it. But now that Ebesha looks at us on our own merits, on our own merits, we don't deserve to live as long as they did then. So now, now that we've identified two eras, the pre and post Mabel eras, the pre Mabel era where the strength and sustainability of the world was completely up to Hashem, wanting the world to continue. Compared to the post-Mabal reality, where we earn our rights to exist through our efforts and personal and global refinement. All of that was preamble to a third era, which is the most important for us all, to the period of Torah. You've got a state where the main thing is the Abish's outlook. Then you have a next stage where the main thing is the value of the world, all to prepare us for the ultimate stage, which is to bring the greatness of Hashem's outlook and the greatness of Hashem's power into the reality of our world so our world can be elevated to and the Abish's energy can enter it. 
that by the way, parenthetically explains why why it is that when Yitzchak was born to his parents, was specifically when they were old. Avram being 100, Sarah being 90. Because that was a moment that brought together those two opposing realities. Because when does Avram live at a time where human lifespan is decreasing? In Avram's times, the declining lifespan is even more marked than it was in the ten generations between Noach and Avram, which includes time after the Mabel as well. Because what was the nature of the flow of divine energy into the world from that point in time? Not from the perspective of Erech which is completely beyond consideration for the realities and, 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 and limitations of the world. Now the Ebeshter was going to imbue energy into the world from a perspective that is relative to the world. And yet, in other words, the world is now getting, in a sense, a lesser, a less intense spiritual package, more suited to sustain the world. And yet, despite all of that, Avram and Sarah have a unique experience that doesn't fit the natural process. They have a child when they're really old. They have an experience which really seems to belong in the era that precedes the Mabel. Where there was this unfettered, generous flooding of divine energy into the world. And that's the point. Because Avram and Sora represent the bridge that harmonizes and brings together these two disparate realities. A reality that is beyond the constraints of the world and the reality of the world. And where do you see that? Clearly, exemplified in Yitzchak's birth. And why that is relevant is because he's he's the first person in history to be born Jewish. And to produce descendants who would accept the Torah. Which is what fuses for real the higher and lower realities. Now, now that we've understood that the whole purpose of creation, which only really started up after the flood and then got off the ground properly in the 2,000 years leading up to the giving of the Torah, is all about fusing the higher and the lower realities. So now you've got to ask ourselves, how? How do we do this? So in order to do this, in order to do this, we have to in order to empower us to be able to bring into our world something that is completely beyond our world in order to facilitate that the Ebishter created a system where there's a time in the creation program where the action of the natural process of the world ceases. The Ebishter rests. Like Rashi says, commenting on the Pasuk that says the Ebishter completed his work on the seventh day, says Rashi, What was the world lacking at that time? Everything is created. Everything is perfect. What's missing? Menucha. Rest. So when Shabbos enters into the reality, so does rest. 
It's at that point in time, everything is as complete and pristine and perfect as it could be. The creation of the world didn't finish with the proactive steps of the six days. Only when something, another reality enters into the space. The concept of rest, where that proactivity ceases. When that enters the mix, now you're talking about a complete creation. And that only happens when Eibesher pauses from creation. Now, whatever happened during the first week of creation, are reenacted and reawakened weekly in our experience. That pristine state of rest which transcends the world completely and speaks the language of a higher reality recurs in the world weekly on Shabbos. Now here is the answer to our original set of questions. Because the concept of Shabbos, like it was originally, is something which is higher than and beyond whatever proactive activities took place in the six days of creation. It's something which is completely beyond the reality of the world i.e. creation. And therefore, the world doesn't know how to absorb such an elevated reality that's completely beyond it. As is explained in various places, Shabbos is a reality that's actually outside of the parameters of time. Therefore, the impact of Shabbos is something which is in the deeper reality of the world. But when you look at the world with superficial physical eyes, you can't tell the difference because it's a Shabbos. We tell the difference because we behave differently. But the world is unable to detect a distinction between Shabbos and a Wednesday. But for us, we're Jewish. Our entire life and our entire focus and the objective of our existence is to bring that fusion of the high and the lower realm, the spiritual and the physical, the holy and the mundane. Therefore, not only do we observe Shabbos, not only can we detect when it's Shabbos, but Shabbos affects us in a revealed way, even if we're not in control of that effect. One classic example of this is the additional soul that is drawn into us over Shabbos affects us in such a way that even our animal soul's nature is modified on Shabbos. To the extent that even somebody who's completely ignorant of all of what Terry has to say won't lie on Shabbos. Even the physical body is different on Shabbos to how it is during the rest of the, world, of the week. Now, the rest of the world doesn't see that. The rest of the world lives very much constrained by the barriers of time and space. Which means they have to be constantly proactive because that's the natural cycle. Nothing is in a state of rest. It's all moving. It's all growing. It's all proactive. 
It's not possible to plug into that active reality the suspension of time and space which Shabbos offers. That's why the concept of Shabbos is not suited to non-Jewish people. Not only not suited, but more, it's forbidden for a non-Jewish person to have a Shabbos, even if it's on another day of the week. Because Kavonas Abriya, he the intention of creation is that the whole world, including humans, yeah, should be constantly in a state of activity. Never resting, always doing. That's how the world was created to exist. Which is completely tethered to the processes of time and space within the world. Which is part of what was created during the creative process. And it's only we, the Jewish people, who get to infuse into that space a dimension that is completely outside and beyond the created reality called Menucha, the suspension of avoid of work. Therefore, if a non-Jewish person wants to change their mode of activity, which is part of their creation, a part of the creation, and now wants to innovate in the world, a Shabbos for themselves, it's not a capital offense in that we're going to drag him in front of the courts. It's self-destruction. Because in this case, this person's going completely against what they were created for. They're self-destructing. They're disconnecting from their purpose, which is to contribute, to build, to make the world better at all times. Therefore, this warning to the non-Jewish world, that they shouldn't choose another day as their Shabbos, Specifically, this was our big question at the beginning. Specifically, is relating is is learned from a pasuk that speaks about how the natural order must never cease. It's talking about the fact that you should never stop planting and that seasons will never stop. And we don't learn it specifically from a pasuk that actually talks about Shabbos. The reason why the non-Jewish world is precluded from Shabbos is a natural consequence of the fact that they should create natural cycles that should never cease. Because following the they made us a promise and therefore established a world that would be sustainable and predictable and cyclic. To the point that it will never cease. So it's impractical and impossible and unacceptable for a non-Jewish person to now try to mix into such a world a reality that doesn't have definitions and cycles and predictability, which is the Mitzvah of Shabbos. By doing so, such a person would be 
contradicting the reality of a world that continues to flow in cycles so as to reflect Hashem's immutable, unchangeable self. And that would be a dangerous thing, actually, for a non-Jewish person to do, while it is exactly our avoider to do.